Welcome to the Soul Podcast. Great stories, tough issues, grace in the real world. Soul is a production of Through the Word. That's the intro. Time for the show. So let's get to it. You've got to hear this story. Hello, Soul listeners. Chris Langham here. Our story today is a powerful one, but not an easy one to hear. And it may not be one for children or for anyone who struggles with PTSD. We're going to the scene of a mass shooting. We will not be graphic, we will be respectful, and we will speak hope and strength and courage through this story. But the story is intense, so please consider before we begin. And kids, turn it off and check with your parents first. Now, that being said, welcome to the Soul Podcast. Great stories, tough issues, grace in the real world. Brad, we are starting a new series, Gunfire, Grace, and Resilience. Brad Hornback is with me once again. Welcome back, Brad. Thank you, sir. Now, Brad, I have to say we've been talking about this series for some time. I have to admit, I love sharing a good story, but I walk into this one with just a little bit of trepidation. It sort of feels like walking on holy ground here because of the events that took place. And I uh, know we've been talking. How do you feel coming into this? Um, I, you know, it's a very somber uh, topic um, and being close to some of our guests that we're going to meet tonight, uh, it's one that that I hope I can make it through. <laughs> to be honest with you, I've struggled today a little bit with how it's going to go. So yeah. yeah, and our guests in the series are actually people who are close to us, and uh, so I'm going to let you introduce our our guests <coughs> for part one in this series. <clears throat> and uh, I have been fighting a frog in my throat, so I apologize. So I want to be clear on that <laughs> as we go. But Brad, I'm going to let you introduce our guests. All right, so our guests today are Frank and Autumn Bignami, and uh, how do you know them? Frank and Autumn uh, work with me. Uh, we are all teachers together at Paramount High School. Um, great people, um, not just you know colleagues, but friends. And I'm excited for them to be here. Um, unfortunately, the re- you know one of the reasons they're here is because of this this traumatic experience that has taken place. Um, and uh, we're going to get to know their story though, because they're amazing people, Chris. All right, Frank, welcome to the studio. Hi. Autumn, welcome to Soul Podcast. Thank you. Nice to have you guys here. Now, I will I will introduce the event. October 1st, 2017, Las Vegas, Nevada. Route 91 Harvest Music Festival. For most of us, the events of the evening began as a news flash. I know that's what it was for me. I saw news of another mass shooting. And it's one of those where I went through, do I want to know information? I do care. I don't want to know. You know what I actually do when I usually get those stories? The only news that I'll read is the stories of the people. Uh, I want to know the lives that were lost, and I want to know that, but I don't need to know the details. And what we're going to do here is we're going to get to know you guys. You guys were were there. Frank and Autumn Bignami were there at the event. And uh, and as we get into that, I want to be clear. We're we're not going to be here to talk about the details of what happened so much or the gun debate or everything else that might come up with this topic, we're going to tell a human side of the story from the perspective of some of the crowd members. It was a, a big crowd at a big concert, and you started the night at a, at a festival and ended the night in a hospital. So, uh, so let's, let's go there. Take me into the concert, and Frank, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you first, to, uh, to take us to the events. Uh, we'll get to know you guys in, in just a minute here, but take us to the events of the festival. Okay, it was the final night. It was the final act of the final night. Um, we were sitting just about right at the stage, about 100 yards back, maybe not even 100 yards. Um, everything was good, and all of a sudden we heard what was some firecrackers, or at least what we thought were firecrackers. Um, we looked over to the right. You could see kind of some dust up. 
and really didn't think anything of it. It was a little, little nerve wracking. It was loud. Um, and then, but it's a big show. A lot of it's noise, a big so show. A lot of stuff. You just on. thought somebody was being silly or being ignorant on what they were doing in a large crowd like that. And within, felt like seconds later, probably thirty, forty seconds. I don't know. I mean, I haven't really gone back too many times to find out the difference in the time. Yeah. Um, another set of firecrackers. What we thought had shot off, and at that point, I was still standing. Um, I guess probably not very wisely, and I looked down and saw my wife was down on the ground. And I thought, look at her, she's the bright one. She actually took cover. Um, and so when I looked down and she looked up at me and that's when I realized that she had been hit um, and that it was no longer firecrackers, that it was actually gunfire. I looked down and she had taken uh, what we they call is now a missile wound through her right cheek and all the way out through the bottom left-hand portion of her neck. Um, I sat over her, I was panic-stricken, and I remember um, my good friend looked at me and said, we gotta go. And it snapped me out, and I decided we there was a, a centerpiece where the stage came out into the crowd that kind of split the arena into two. And we decided to run for that. And we ran and we jumped over, and we got in past the barricade, and I don't remember this, but my friend told me I was the one that reached up with a hand and grabbed a table and flipped it over us just to provide some sort of hiding spot. Not like it was actually going to stop what was coming, but at least we were now hiding. And that, I don't know how long that was. Um, but Did you within, have a sense of what direction you needed to head at that point? Um, a little bit. You could hear where it was coming from. I okay. couldn't tell you, like now obviously I know very little because I don't ever look into it. I couldn't like a I don't know how high up he was. I, st I don't read any of it. I yeah. just thought, I knew it was coming from my right. Didn't okay. know if it was on the ground, if it was up high, whatever. So we just ran away from the sound. And so we got there and then realized that it was just coming hard. It was loud. It was, and it felt like it was just getting closer. Um, and so I heard my buddy go, we got to get out of here. And so at that point, that's where we lost track of him. He went up a different way. He kind of hid behind a set of vendors and i knew that i needed to get her to first aid we'd been there earlier in the day for a blister so i knew that across the way they may have some first aid stuff that would actually maybe help me put pressure and stop the bleeding because that was my main concern of i need to stop the bleeding because i didn't right. know where on the neck or anything i just knew that she was still alive and she was still coherent and she was ready to go so for me probably a bad choice we decided to go across and across into the open area just to get across instead of trying to hide and cover we ran straight across, and that's trying when— Trying to get to the first aid. Trying to get to the first aid, and that's when I was grazed right in the wrist, turned around to see where it was coming from, and when I turned around, Autumn was not standing again. She had been hit in the back, mm -hmm. and that's when she sustained her wound from her back that went out from the back out through the right side of her rib cage. Um, I got on top of her at that point, and we scurried behind a— almost like a, I don't want to say a tripod. It was like a pillar. It was a three-sided pillar with all the listing of events just to hide behind that. I remember trying to hide behind that like that was actually going to help us, which seems kind of funny right now, or silly. I mean, not funny, but silly. Um, that That's instinct is, of it, course, hide. just to hide. some kind of cover. And I remember at that point I could hear her breathing still, and I didn't know to the extent that she'd been shot again. I didn't know. Um, and I remember sitting over her, and I said, can you hear me? And she said, yeah. Like, she squeezed my thumb. And I said, okay. I said, can you move? And she squeezed my thumb hard. And I was like, okay, she's ready. I said, when the shooting stops, 
we need to get up and we need to run, we need to get across into first aid. Can you do it? She squeezed my thumb, got up, and we went straight across. And at that time, we were able to make it to first aid. Um, at that point, first aid was crazy. I remember we were walking over people that were on the ground, people that had been shot. I would imagine they were laying on the ground. Um, I couldn't tell you what they looked like. I couldn't tell you anything. I had pretty much tunnel visioned onto my wife at that point. Right. Um, we sat down. I sat her down, and at that point, a gentleman had come up. I couldn't even once again. I couldn't tell you what he looked like, who he was, or whatever. And he wasn't with the. I don't think he was with the event. He was just a person that knew emergency protocol at that point. He had got gauze. He'd stuck it on her back and her side. And he'd given her a, I remember the pink bowl, to spit the blood out that was coming out of her mouth. And at that moment, a gentleman came in and had some harsh language saying, basically, if you can walk, that you needed to get out of here now. They were getting closer. Because at that point, he, I remember vividly, he used the word they as if there were multiple people shooting at us. Right. And there's a lot of unknown at this point, not really knowing I mean, what it is that you're facing, but you've got to get out. Knowing my timeline from when the first shots went out to when we get to the hospital, it was literally five minutes, if that, from then to then, if that. Wow. I mean, we were quick. When we got to the hospital, first shots were 10.08. We got to the hospital. I called her sister, I think, at 10.25, 10.26. So we were moving, and it wasn't for that. So at that point, I grabbed her because she was still able to go, and we left um, at this point. Um, She's bleeding. She's got minimal clothes on because they've cut everything off. And we're walking down um, the backside of the event. Um, I remember having a guy tell me that all of the first responders were the other way. So we had literally almost walked a half a block towards the Tropicana and got to almost, I remember there's a church right on the right corner, which is weird that I remember that. And I turned around and we walked back because that's where they told us the first responders were. And I was like, okay, who's going to lie about that or not know, whatever. Why would you make that up? Yeah. Turned around. We walked halfway back to basically where we walked out of the venue. And knowing now what I know, back directly in the line of fire. And a gentleman had told me that I needed to put her down and we needed to wait for help, to which I knew that if I waited for help, she wasn't going to live. And I was yeah. like, look, she's going to die if I wait. And so I sat her down at that point i realized i need to sit her on the curb and i tried to stop the first car that came by and it was a gentleman and his wife and their back seat was empty i said i was standing in front and i said can you help me my wife has been shot and he looked at me shook his head and kept driving at that point i punched the back window trying just to get in and he sped off even more and at that point i looked up and there was a white truck don't know if it's a white truck that everyone knows about or has heard there were several that night, and I looked up, and the guy told me that his back of his cab was full, and the back of his truck was full. And I pointed down to my wife, and I said, she's been shot three or four times. Can you help? And he said, put her in the back. So I got her, and there was in the back left corner, there was one little spot. So I pushed her, I lifted her up, got her in, and she slid down. As I went to get on the tailgate to, to ride, he drove away, and I fell. And so I'm there on my hands and knees, which... At that point, we're and all cut up. And the truck is driving away from me. And the truck you? is driving away from me. Wow. And so we get to that point. Um, I, I, I I don't know what to do. All I can think of is I got to run. Yeah. And I, I just think, okay, he's got to get to that stop sign. If I can run to that stop sign, 
I can see which way he goes, and then maybe I can cut. I, I'm not thinking logically. Maybe I can cut some corners. However, maybe I can Superman it. Whatever. At that point, I'm just thinking. You just gotta go. I gotta go. Yeah. And so I'm running, and he has to slow down because there's people everywhere. So he's not going that fast. And I get about ten yards away, and I think, this is it. I'm gonna run. I'm gonna jump. I'm gonna hit the tailgate, and I'm in. I don't care who I hit. I'm not losing my wife. This is not happening. I get about five yards away, and he hooks a right, and I don't make it. Mm. And I just I might put my head down. I'm, like, just defeated. And I look up because I'm looking down at the ground, and I see the red lights. And I realize they're first responders. And I look up, and about a block away, there's first responders. And I see the truck slowly weaving through some police officers and everything there. Put my head down, and I just start running. And I was able to make it to the car as it pulled up to the ambulance. I... I'm sorry. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Just, you got, yeah. I hadn't actually gotten this part of the story yet. And so I get wow. there, I pick her up, and I put her into the ambulance with the help of a few first responders. Um, we get in the ambulance, and I remember vividly it's one gurney, a seat across from me, and the seat across from me was a lady with a gentleman who had actually taken a, a bullet to the butt. Um, a girl that had, unfortunately, I don't think she made it, and another girl who had been shot in the neck, laying both of them on the gurney. There was another girl to my right. Um, Autumn was to my right, and there was another girl of to the right of Autumn. So we were full up, and we're sitting there, I remember, and I kept thinking, why are we still here? So I looked at the first responder or the ambulance guy, and the police officer was standing at the back of the thing, just standing outside. I said, why are we gone? Why are we not? leaving why are we he goes we're waiting for more i said where are you going to put them we have people on laps the gurney's got two there's nowhere else to stick people you need to take us and come back yeah otherwise we're gonna die in this ambulance if you don't you need to take us oddly enough the police officer like, you're right and they shut the doors and we took off um I remember now, i'm gonna i'm gonna actually interrupt yours part of the story here you as autumn to, to take us back to part that that you remember now you don't actually remember all of this but uh, but I, I want to ask you to, to to bring us back to to what your perspective. You, you were the one hit. This is a you were both there together, and it's your story there together. But what do you recall? Uh, I actually do remember most of it, which is alarming, I suppose sometimes. But um, some of the more vivid memories that stand out, I do remember the first shot. So I remember getting hit. I remember. Is that how you realized what was happening? Was when you were actually hit? I. I remember thinking like that hurt and I couldn't figure out at first what happened. My head was throbbing, the noise was intense mm-hmm. and um, I just remember like it just didn't feel right. It didn't like hurt hurt so much but like it just felt like something had hit me in the head and I didn't, I don't think I realized right away that I was shot. Uh, it wasn't until the second time that I knew that's what had happened. So when we ran and got to the point where I was uh, shot again, that I I remember very vividly. I remember that feeling. I remember hitting the ground, and and that that memory is really um, strong in, yeah. in my brain. So, and what went through your mind? What do you? At that point, that was the only point along our entire journey. From, from the events of the hospital where I remember feeling like I was going to die. I, I was lying on the ground. I remember the lights. I remember the sounds. 
I mean, I remember what the ground felt like beneath my fingers. And I remember like having that conversation in my head of this is where I'm going to die. I am not going to see my children again. This is, this is it. And I had this, I call it this conversation in my head of, and <laughs> I've told Brad this before, <laughs> of like, you know, okay, God, we don't talk much, but here we are. <laughs> and um, I just kept saying, I want to see my babies again. Like, I want to see them again. And from there, it became this, like, just this thought in my head of I will see them again. I will see them again. And then that was when he asked about, Frank asked about me being able to get up. And and I remember, like, grabbing and, and you know, yes, I, you know, I couldn't speak at the time, but the ability to get up and and getting up and walking. We, he and I have talked about this. Everyone assumes that he carried me, you know, somewhere along the way, but I walked yeah. uh, the whole time. <laughs> Autumn is very tough. <laughs> Frank, can you know, he, before all this, I knew how tough she was, but it's just, it's, a, it's, it's, it's just amazing. The only it's time amazing. I carried her was to put her in the truck and to take her out of the truck and stick her in the ambulance. Yeah. And that was it. And then somewhere you in between. just get moving. Were you in pain? Was it? I don't remember feeling like I was in pain. Uh, I was really hard to breathe after the yeah. second shot. It um, collapsed my lung, lacerated my liver, and broke some ribs. So it was really difficult to breathe. Uh, I had a fractured scapula, we found out later, probably from when my husband jumped on top of me. Okay, yeah, let's <laughs> clarify that a little bit. I mean, Frank, Frank, being your husband, tried to actually cover, get on, mm-hmm. cover you up, essentially, yeah. and through that may have... May have fractured my but, scapula. But did, yes. Right. <laughs> and somewhere in between that and getting to the first aid tent, I was struck in the hand. And mm-hmm. I remember that. I remember that what the shrapnel looked like um, coming out of my hand. Um, but only when we were in the ambulance. At one point, we were going over like sidewalks. I remember I kind of fell forward because it was too. It just hurt too bad to hold myself upright. And so I was leaning on the girl who was laying on the gurney. And I remember like feeling like. That can't feel good for her, but I couldn't, like, I could not move. I didn't have the strength to mm-hmm. push myself back. Now, I'm going to actually back us up a little bit. And, uh, and Brad, I, uh, we actually jumped a little ways ahead before we, we, did. we, we laid did. down we our, had, our rules of engagement. That was, but, uh, yeah. but I had a little trouble stopping the story because no, I, I wanted to hear it again. <laughs> but, uh, but, Brad, uh, why don't you take us through the, the rules of engagement? What we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about uh, recovery on this. We're going to talk about the the road that uh, that you've been on for for the last two years now, and uh, we're going to talk about hope and strength and uh, and some of the things that uh, that we learn from the hardest things in life. But before we get into to all of that, I also want to get to know you. And before we get to that, I'm going to let Brad cover our, our rules of engagement. Yeah, real for quick, we, podcast. Yeah, real quick, we lay out our rules of engagement for the entire series of so the four four episodes. So basically, uh, we're going to respect the story. Uh, serious issues. It's your guys' story, people's stories that we're talking about. Um, and so we're going to respect those. Humility before wisdom. Uh, before, you know, basically good questions come before good answers. Um, we need to um, make sure that we're wise in that. Grace always. I mean, the whole thing is grace, right? We want to find grace in, in every issue, in, in every life, in every situation. Uh, and then ultimately, for us through this whole podcast, is God has the last word. 
So again, you know, we, we want to um, recognize him in every story and so forth. So I want to underscore here why our rules of engagement are, are so important, especially for this story. We're talking about a tragic story and a hopeful one, which is also closely linked to a hot political debate for a lot of people. It is not our goal here to push our opinion or argue a case, nor is it our aim to paint anyone in particular as a hero. Stories like this one bring up some hard questions about life and about God, and we don't intend to offer easy answers to hard questions. Uh, I don't think it works that way. We're here to tell the story. So I'll, let's get back to that. Let's actually back up before the, uh, the events at the concert and get to know you guys. So Brad, I'll ask you for this. You've known Frank and Autumn for some time. Uh, what kind of teachers are they? You know, Chris, they're the kind that Autumn laughs over in the background. <laughs> they are the, the ones that their students remember. And not for negative reasons, because there's those teachers too, but for positive reasons. They're, they're the ones that are teaching um, students more than just the subject that they're involved with. They're, they're teaching them real life. They're, they're help, helping them to just be better people, better citizens. Um, and they're the ones that the kids don't forget. The kids come back. They want to communicate with still. They want to visit. They want to know what's happening in Frank and Autumn's kids' lives. Those are the teachers that they are. Nice. Frank, what do you teach? I teach AVID currently, AVID 10, AVID 12, and then PE. I call AVID, my daughter's in AVID, I call AVID how to school. And, yes. uh, and it's kind of on the way to how to life. I, I really appreciate that, that course for, for my daughter. And uh, Autumn, you are, you're still on the, on the recovery road, and you're not in the classroom yet. Um, but what do you teach? I'm the activities director at the high school. So handling all the school events, all the dances, all the assemblies, organizing the student government in charge of the leadership and ASB classes. It's an energetic job that she covers <laughs> very well. So, uh, so what draw, what drew you guys to teach? What's what's your heart teaching? Uh, I gotta say, we actually have four teachers in the room. I only taught <laughs> one year. I taught one year of classroom math, and uh, and I, I I got knocked out after that. I went I, back I, into teaching in the pulpit again. <laughs> twenty one years. Twenty one years <laughs> teaching. So, uh, so what? Teaching is not the easiest job, and it's not the highest paying job. No. What? Uh, why do you teach? Well, for me, I was. I would say I was that kid who at seven, when you said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always said a teacher. Yeah. Uh, for me, the teachers when I was little were really helpful and awesome. And I had a bit of a crazy home life. So teachers were the ones that were really helpful for me when I was younger. So I always said, that's what I want to do. I want to become a teacher. And I sort of stumbled into Paramount and fell in love with it and fell in love with our students and the the diversity of the issues that our population presents. And I just, I love it. I love that aspect of showing them new stuff. I love being able to teach them about life and being good humans. That's been, you know, I said, we talked about this once before. If I look back, if you look back at my original application to the teaching program, what, 16, 17 years ago, in my application, I wrote that I didn't, I wasn't as concerned about teaching them history. I wanted to be a history teacher. It's a good subject, but by the that way. At the, <laughs> at the end of it, I wanted them to come out of it being better humans, and that was what my goal was in college. That's what I wanted to do as a teacher. So. Yeah, be a role model. Teachers change mm -hmm. the world for not so much about changing the whole world, but you can change one kid's whole world. Mm -hmm. That's something to do. Frank, why do you teach? Um, I started teaching. Basically, I, I was kind of lost going to the 30s, didn't know what I wanted to do. I was coaching baseball, 
and realized that there were a lot of kids like me that I went to school to play baseball. I wasn't, I wasn't stupid. I was fairly intelligent. I th- I figured out now, but if it wasn't for coaches, <laughs> if it wasn't for coaches or teachers who kept pushing me to go through, I don't think I'd have ever gone to college. But coaches that just kept getting me through high school, through, and in the back end ended up going to college, ended up traveling through Europe, and it was all because of baseball. And I realized that. The only reason why I made it through was baseball, and I was now coaching baseball, and there were probably lots of kids like me who didn't necessarily have the push, maybe from home. My parents were good parents, and it's just school was never the top priority. But there were probably baseball players like me who were bright but had never been told they were bright, and it was only just go play baseball, you'll be fine, just go play baseball. No, no, you're never going to – I was never going to make it. I was good, but I wasn't that good. But you could take that and maybe go play junior college baseball, get a small scholarship, get your education paid for, and go that route. So I went a little bit more personal for me as well, just trying to reach out to kids that were like me that had a coach and try to do the same things my coaches did for me, get me into schools that were probably better than I deserved to go to. And yeah, and, that, and there, there are those teachers who, who teach you the subject, and you learn algebra, you learn biology. But there are, are those teachers, you know, kids look up to someone. They're, they're looking around to, to look up to someone. And I think in, coaching gives you a particular opportunity to speak into kids' lives. Mm-hmm. They'll listen to you in a, in a different way. And, uh, and AVID being such an interesting class as you talk about next steps. You talk a lot about college. You talk a lot about where you're going to go with your life. You get a chance to, to make an impression on kids and give them some direction. I stopped coaching, and when I stopped coaching, I picked up Avid because I knew I would miss that aspect to be able to relate to kids and be able to motivate kids to realize their full potential in a different way. Um, So when I stopped coaching, it was kind of an easy transition for Avid. Yeah, I like it. Brad, you were gonna, I asked you to tell a little story because you actually know the kids that uh, that uh, these guys work with at Frank and Autumn. You guys are all at the same school. <laughs> we are. Paramount High School. Yeah. And uh, how, how large is Paramount High School? Paramount is, <laughs> well, sophomore through senior, we're around 3,500. Oh, and at the, with the freshmen, it's another kids. 15 to 16, I think. Something. We're the largest high school, I believe, in California. We What's are the demographic? Sure. And in terms of... Like ethnic demographic, ethnic demographic, kids it's up? it's uh, mainly Hispanic. Um, we do have a large population of African Americans as well, um, Polynesians. Um, right up, uh, we're located right by Compton and Downey and Lakewood, um, kind of in that area. So, uh, yeah, for the most so part, got lo- kids who are growing up and with with some gang struggles and with uh, the the pulls on their life. Uh, yes. A lot of broken families. Yes. Um, Lower but, economic yeah. status families. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so I, you told me a story before, so I'm going to let you tell again for, for our audience about a kid named Chris. So Chris, Chris <laughs> is an amazing young man, which that's a whole nother story in, in certain regards. Um, I like the name uh, but, so far. That's funny. Uh, here's the thing for Chris, though. Chris, um, he, Chris is a young man who was able to get a scholarship and go away to college. Um, go up to Cal Berkeley on a football scholarship. The kid is a grown man, and even when he was a kid, he was a grown man. He's, he's a he's an O lineman, a big guy. Um, and these two, uh, just amazing um, to offer him support. You know, just to show support to him, to give him people at his game, to get to be there for him. Uh, drove up multiple times, but drove up. To Berkeley, to which, Berkeley, which is not a short drive. 
No. Um, it's kind of a boring drive up through the Central Valley and so forth, but they drove up to to go up and support Chris. So yeah, Chris has graduated. He was he was part. Yes. He was with you guys in high school, but he, he yes. stayed kind of part of your family. Chris is. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say he was one of my student government kids. That was how I happened upon him. Yeah. And he just got to be. You know, I think all teachers you get some that you become closer with than others. And he had a hardworking mom, single mom, raising four kids, and. She needed a little more help with not help necessarily, but just you know you got a lot. You've got four kids, and and she wasn't sure you know how to do all the paperwork, and and had a lot of questions about stuff. So I was able to help. Like, okay, we're doing college apps. So this is what we need. Hey, send your mom in. You know, we'll work on this. So I would you know we were working on stuff together and getting signatures and doing all of that. And, and then he's we, going to Berkeley, so that's yeah, he's going to college. Yeah. So we got we got in. Smart kid. Yeah. Very smart very, kid. Very bright kid. And then his first year, he wasn't going to start, but and it was actually Frank who knew the that there was value in having support, even if you were not going to be playing. I think for him, he's he's a first gen kid, so mom and dad didn't know. Mom and dad didn't really know the significance of being able to run out of the tunnel your first game as a freshman. And for me, I sat back and I said. Oh heck no! Someone he's got to have somebody in the stands that he knows that when he runs out, there's somebody out of the sixty-five thousand people in that stadium. Yeah. He can say, "I got somebody here." And so, being an SC fan, it was tough. I donned all Cal gear. <laughs> I, I put on all Cal gear. I've seen I had all my Cal gear, it's, and it's we rolled up that first game, and he didn't play. And he was like, "I'm sorry." I'm like, and we took him to dinner afterwards. And I was like, "Dude, that's cool, man." I said, "Do you know how many people?" Get to do that, man. You're special. It's like a special thing you just got to do. Yeah. And just like anything else, his mom and his dad, they understood after a while of seeing it, and they started to make up as many games as they could. And that was, and it wasn't us trying to take over a role. It was just one of those things of we knew this kid, and it was one of those things of I, I just knew that maybe at that moment his parents didn't quite understand the significance of yeah. what he was doing. And it was it was fun. I felt honored to be able to go up and do it and, and share that with him. And he was more than willing to share it with us. And I'll, I'll say two things about this is this is who they are, though. They they fill gaps like there's so many kids that, at the high school or ones that have graduated now that I know that they feel they just <laughs> fill gaps. They're there yeah. for them when when they're needed. In fact, and I'll tell you how close they are still is. Their children right now are, are being watched by Chris. <laughs> yes. So, how old are your kids? Uh, 15, 10, and 8. They just had, we just had a few birthdays roll through. Sorry. So, uh, yeah, it's 15, 10, and 8. And there is a six foot four, 300 pound man as a babysitter right now. Yeah. They're doing great. All right. This is the opportunity to say hi to your kids. Hi, guys. Hi. <laughs> should be in bed soon. They can watch this anytime. <laughs> Okay, now I, now I want to tell that story because I want to introduce you guys as, as who you are, as people. And one of the things that really struck me as we had a conversation when, when I first got to meet you was, was that you shared with me that you weren't interested in having one event define your lives, define who you are. There's a lot more to who you are, and that's true for every story. That, that, that what you went through, this is one traumatic event, and it certainly dominates a large part of your life as you're in recovery and we're going to talk about recovery but that doesn't mean it defines who you are and one of the one of the issues that as, as we talk about this there, there's one part of it that who you are affects how you respond in the event but it also plays a, a large role in who you are in recovery and in resilience and those are th some of the things i want to talk about so let's go back to the event and talk a little bit first about what instincts kick in for uh 
for you, Frank, you're you're a coach, you're a, a teacher, and as I hear you talking about giving direction to a uh, a police officer and to first responders, how much is that of that is just the coach in who you are, and how much of that was the intensity of the moment? I don't know. I think there's a weird thing. I get it. I think I get that probably from my mom, who's had a similar experience and just is is crazy, has a crazy ability in all chaos, just to stay calm and focus mm-hmm. in on task at hand. Um, like I said, once I realized what happened, kind of tunnel visioned on my wife. And we've talked a little bit about how fortunate I feel that, at least in my story, I only had the tunnel vision on my wife and I didn't have to worry about anything else. I just remember, I think it repeated, I don't know how many times I reported, we're not dying here. Mm -hmm. This is not happening. We are not dying here. And I kept repeating that to her over and over again. This is not happening. You are not dying here. We're, We're getting out. And is that, I mean, is that... It kind was, of attitude part of your character? Is that the way you look at life? In <laughs> a little bit. Yes. It, it maybe, <laughs> I say you, yes. You could honestly say I, I border and probably am fairly arrogant when it comes to some of those beliefs that this isn't beating me. Yeah, You're not beating me. Not today. And I think it's maybe the athlete in me and the competition of just I'm not losing. I'm not losing this way. You're not going to beat me. Some guy that or guys at that point, you're not beating me. You're not good enough. Yeah. And that was maybe arrogant. And maybe that's what I needed to tell myself to get through it. I'm thankful I got through it, and I'm mm-hmm. thankful for that. Well, that's the, it's the fight inside. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things that athletics gives us when, when you get to, to play on a team that, you know, you look back as an adult and how, how much weight you put on as a kid, the, the championship game, just like that was life in the moment. But you look back at that, and there's some things that, that were trained in your heart that uh that that you need later on and and not just in that moment but you guys have been in a fight of recovery for a couple of years now and honestly it's it seems i mean when you think about it and looking back and thinking about it now it, it I, it's not like i've won every competition i've ever been in so it's not like i haven't been beat or i haven't been bested by something or somebody but i just remember walking through that event and even when we got to the hospital we got out i and she was out I didn't have my ID or I didn't I she didn't have her ID and I I when when we get when we arrived at the hospital the first people that went out were the was the girl on the ride to the if you wanted the ride to the hospital that was crazy as all heck um the the guy across from me was losing it he was starting to just have some anxiety worried about the girl he was afraid was going to pass away. And he, I was like, look, you're screaming at her. And if the more you scream, it's just going to raise her blood pressure and she's going to bleed out here. Mm. You need to be calm. You need to talk to her. Just talk to her. Give her something to focus on. And so as I'm talking to him about this, he calmed down and started talking to her. And literally as we were driving down Vegas Boulevard, I'm talking with a guy and the there were two of them. And he was like, dude, what do we do? We're stuck. And He's like, can we go up on the sidewalk? Yeah, get on the sidewalk. He's, uh, he's telling the guy, get on the sidewalk. So there's a part we're actually driving on the sidewalk going down Vegas Boulevard right in front of, I think that's Bally's. And we're going through there. And then at that point, the guy that was across from me had enough common sense. Like, look, she's going. We need to start working on her. So the girl that had been shot in the neck, I looked at her and I said, look, we need to get you off the gurney. I said, can you move? And she blinked and nodded slightly I said I'm gonna hold out my hand and I said when I hold out my hand I need you to grab it I said I'm not going to move you I said I need you to grab it and hold on and pull 
on me. You're going to pull yourself. I'm going to help as we go, but I'm not going to pull you. You're going to have to do this because I don't want to hurt you. Can you do that? She gave me a slight nod and did that. And I said, on the count of three, and I said, one, two, three. And as she did it, she grabbed hard. Meanwhile, Autumn's still on my right, and the girl's there, and I swing her up, and I stick her on my lap. And I have one girl on my lap holding her with my left, and I have Autumn in my right hand. They started to work on the girl in the middle, and I had to ask the girl to the right, which was her friend, the girl that was on my lap. It was her friend. Can you please lean against my wife? I can't hold her up anymore. And she was like, so she leaned in. We were kind of pushing on Autumn. We were sandwiching her. I was holding the girl on the left. We rolled into the thing. They gurneyed the girl out. I got the girl off my lap. They took her. I looked back, got Autumn out, then turned around, put Autumn in a wheelchair, turned back around to the guy, helped the guy get out, helped his girlfriend get out. And by the time I turned around, Autumn was gone. With no ID. With no ID. (laughs) And so I went to talk to the lady I said, this is my the second time you've lost track of <laughs> yes. your wife good husband right there right? Good husband. Um, this time it's at a hospital this time it's at a hospital <laughs> a, little, a little different at least I know where she's going to be at right? <laughs> and so I had that building. realization fairly quickly um, and I said that's my wife she goes we can't and I said I get it and so I started to walk and then I started to see some cars and I started to see some things so I started helping people out of cars at that point and Autumn is going back and so I'm helping people out um, I stumble upon across a girl who is losing it because her husband was shot in the leg and she's yelling at what I assume is his best friend and he's like look he was and he used the word which is bad I look back at it now and go, he was only shot in the leg he's gonna be fine and she's like how do you know and she's screaming at him and I'm like I looked at her and I said and I looked at him and I said can I and he was like I got it. I said I got it and he goes, he goes, wait, I said, look, I said, that was your husband. Yeah. And she goes, yeah. And I go, my wife is back there. And he goes, yeah. She goes, yeah. I said, she was shot in the face. She was shot in the back. And she was shot a couple more times because I didn't know. I just knew the hand. And I thought she'd been shot more. And she goes, I said, if you cause chaos for those people, because she was trying to fight to get back and they were having to hold her. I said, if you fight and those people can't help my wife, she's going to die. I said, and if your husband's really that hurt and you take, attention away from what they need to do they could die we need to trust them to do what they're supposed to do I said come let's go inside and let them do what they're supposed to do and so she walked in with me and we walked in and sat and at that point I sat her down we got her water and I went back out and I haven't told her this we went back out and I saw a dead guy he had to have taken a bullet and I walked back out, and that was in for me. That was when I stopped. Yeah. And I walked back in, and at this point, I don't. I'm sitting in the corner, um, and the same girl that I'd helped came up to me and said, "Hey, look, have you put your name? I don't know how much time has gone through. It's had to have been about twenty, thirty minutes, whatever." Um, in the course of that time, I had made phone calls as I'm helping getting to family members. And she, I'm sitting in a corner, and she said, "Have you put your name in?" And I said, no, why? And she said, they need the names of people of the victims so they can reach out to relatives. So she walked me over there, and I put my name in. And then, again, I see another girl who's just losing it in the corner. And so I sat down in front of her, and I had the same kind of conversation with her. And then her friend put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. He says, you're scaring people. 
And I said, I said, I looked at her. I said, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. Am I scaring you? And she said, no. He says, no, you need to go use the restroom. You need to see. And I walked in, and I was covered in blood. My face, my shirt, my arms, my whole body, you could see a limited amount of skin color. From the mound, I think the girl that was in front of me, to my wife, to everybody that I'd helped, I was covered. And he so said, you, you just weren't aware of it. And I wasn't because I hadn't seen a mirror. Yeah. And so I started scrubbing feverishly when I got in there and scrubbed my face off. And then I got a call from my friend. And then the story takes a different turn from there. So, Autumn, tell me about tell me about your husband's character through all this. What, what did what did you see? In, um, well, in he's Frank? always been a leader. <laughs> um, so, I think for me, the I was aware enough to know kind of what was going on, and I also, you know, we talked about like instinct of what was happening. Um, I knew we needed to get out. Um, I have law enforcement in my family. I knew that the rescuers were not coming in. Like, I knew we were not going to be saved in that instant by someone coming in because there was still gunfire happening. So we knew we had to get out. So every time he said, we got to move, we got to move, it was like, okay, this is what we're doing. And so... Um, so you he, were focused on listening to him. Absolutely. And we've talked about that. You know, he says he tunneled on me, I tunneled on him. There are very few things I remember seeing because I was so focused on... What are we doing now? What are we doing now? And he was that leader. You know, we've talked about this, this, yeah. mm-hmm. this head of the family, this husband, this, you know, he really was the leader. And, and I followed, you know, everything that he said. This is what we need to do. And wh- what about the, uh, the instinct to dive on top of you? <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> no, now me. this is this is interesting to me. You know, yeah, like like anyone, I play situations in my head. What would I do in a certain situation? I usually let go of that. But the the instinct to do you run to save yourself, or no, you if, if my wife or my kids are there, then the the first instinct to to protect that was yes, and I think that was very strong for him, and that. It was. I'm not gonna lie. My first, I, 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 if it wasn't for my friend who snapped me quickly, back in fact, I, I may have, I may not have. You can, I don't know, but I was looking at her with still a look of like disbelief, and he said, "Frank," and I said, "Yeah, we gotta go." And at that point, that's when it snapped for me, and my whole mentality changed, and it was so from, from it went from, it went from disbelief to once hyper focus um i could tell you the image of what i saw on her face when she looked at me and i'll never forget it i see it every day and we got up and we went and it was it wasn't a pretty picture it's my wife and she's beautiful but at that point from what i was seeing it wasn't my wife and so it was we got to go and from that moment that was just it it was I kind of laugh when people say, oh, I'd go and do this. I, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. You have no idea. I can't pass judgment on anybody for anything they did in that situation because, to be honest, why should anybody ever, and maybe I'm wrong, why should everybody be in that position? We should yeah. never, nobody should have ever been in that position. It's not yeah. a natural thing. And so to think that you would do one thing or another, you can hope you would do something, but I can't blame you if you don't. And I can't blame you one way or the other. I can't. And I can't find fault in anything that anybody did. 
other than the one person. Yeah. And that's it, man. I, I, there's fault to be had at other places. Don't get me wrong. But in the reaction after that moment, after that moment, well, and we've yeah. talked about this because he second guesses his decision all the time to go the path that we went. No, you can't do that. Well, and we've talked about that, and I, I was saying, you know, my the way I've always looked at it as the path that we took, the journey that we made, the path that we walked, is what got us here today. So whether that meant I got shot again because of the way we went, but that's still how we got out and how we got out so fast. Have we gone another way? You don't know if maybe I didn't get shot again, but maybe I lost too much blood. Like there is no what if. So you know, I always stop him every time he tries to. We were at that rang home. We were at the first time that we actually saw or met anybody. We I we'd come close with one family in the hospital. I was not very social at the hospital. There were a lot of families that were kind of bonding over it and getting through it in their own way. For me, it was once again hyper on my wife. It was like, I don't care what I got to do. I'm going to get my wife out of here. I I don't really, sorry, I don't care who you are or what you're going through on the side over here. I got to get my wife out of here to see my kids. This is what I focus on. But there was a gentleman to the left, and I ended up meeting his, who was shot, his brother came out. We just were happening like at 3 o'clock in the morning and had a conversation and stumbled upon that his dad went to the same high school I did. We were just talking about where you were from and whatever. And over the course of the time, I ended up just talking to his dad, and his dad and I became somewhat close. It was just one of those weird things. It was the only person and the only family that I talked to the entire time I was there. And we met them at one of the after kind of gatherings. And it was the guy's sister's husband who they were both also at the concert and they were with him when he was shot. And him and I were talking and he said, you know, he said, we all went one way and we all ended up here. If we think about if what's wins, he said, Maybe we run into a stray bullet that we wouldn't have run into the other way. And maybe that's the one that ends our story differently. He says, so, and I was talking to him about, I shouldn't have gone that way. He goes, you don't know. He says, you hook a left, maybe you run into a bullet that had your name on it and you can't get her out. And that one rang home. And so for that, I I, I think I say that almost, I want to say, it's not right tongue in cheek. I say it just as, it seems silly now when I think about it. I could have screwed across the back wall and then cut across a shorter distance. Instead, I chose the path of, hey, I'm out here in the middle of this big, giant, what ended up shooting range, wide open for you to hit me again. And so when I think about it that way, I think, okay, that was silly, but how are you? And like I said, I can't fault anybody for what you did. You just did what you came. I, I knew I needed yeah. to get to first aid, and I was going the fastest possible route. Now, was it probably the wisest after I thought back? Probably the not. The beautiful thing is... <laughs> yes. We're here tonight we talking it. about it in, in this regard. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I want to talk to you guys more. We're actually running out of time for this episode, but I want to invite you to come back. We're going to we're going to tell another story in uh, in part 2 of this series. I'm going to invite uh, a couple neighbors of mine who are at the same event and uh, and they have a different story. So, we'll invite and all I'm going to invite you guys back for part 3 and 4. Where I want to talk about recovery. But to close out this episode, I do want to uh, to do something. Now, normally on the Soul Podcast, we we do a little something called our, our theology throwdown. And uh, now, now Brad and I <coughs> talked about this. We said we're going to do it a little bit differently this time, where normally we would uh, we would find uh, 
a challenging question in the in the subject and uh, and kind of challenge each other with our, our answers and we have a bit of throw down with it for this I just wanted to get talk uh, to share some verses uh, of resilience and strength verses and uh, and I got one on my heart but I want to give opportunity for uh, for you guys to share as well so uh, and I, I know I asked you before so I'll uh, I'll ask you to go ahead and read that I think Autumn you've got a verse to to read for us the one I had was Acts two twenty one. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah, that's a beautiful one. I, uh, I chose one that is very personal to me. There are a lot of verses where God speaks directly to his people to, get, to be strong and be courageous and to fight the good fight. But the one that's personal for me was a verse that he gave me when I was in the midst of, uh, of my greatest personal trauma, dealing with a, a lot of family issues with my dad and grandmother and a lot of crazy stuff going on. But this is what spoke to me. Psalm 27, 13. I would have given up hope if I had not been convinced that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And uh, we'll do one more verse to close. Somebody's got Isaiah 40, and this is a favorite. I think Autumn, you've given us that one as well. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I love that verse. Well, I'm going to close this out. Thanks for being here with us, guys. Frank and Autumn Bignami, thank you, Brad, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You guys will join us again as uh, we talk recovery in Episode 3 in this series. And uh, But we're going to have... Two new guests for episode two, also at the same event in Las Vegas, Steve and Abra Treskes. Steve is a firefighter, and uh, he trains for intense situations. We'll get their story in part two as we talk a little bit about where God is in the midst of all of this. And for our listeners, quite a story. I told you you're going to talk about it. You heard it. Now go tell someone. It's a muddy world, so walk by faith and walk with grace. We'll see you in the next episode. That's all for the Soul Podcast, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the story. Join us next time as the conversation continues. You can subscribe wherever great podcasts are found. And you can find every episode at soulpodcast.com. That's S-O-L-E podcast.com. The Soul Podcast is a production of Through the Word. If you like this podcast, you're going to love Through the Word with audio guides for every chapter in the Bible. Join us for an epic journey through the entire Bible and understand the Bible in just 10 minutes a day. Get the app free at throughtheword.org. Thanks, everyone. Our producer is Brad Hornback. Audio production by Kira Joy. Video by Michael Kincaid. Audio editing by Daisy Short. On behalf of the whole team at The Soul Podcast, thanks for joining us. You heard the story. Now go talk about it. Share a post. Tell a friend. Start a conversation. And we'll see you in the next one. You gotta hear that story.